You may be seated. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. We're continuing our way through the text. Last week we looked at Matthew chapter 26 and we considered from the text uh, the amazing truth of Christ's offer to us of communion and our, our privilege that we have to be one with Christ and to celebrate that union with him through the partaking of communion. Now, at some point, as we're working our way through the text, it's not explicitly recorded for us here in the passage, but at some point, Judas has left the room, he has left the group, he has gone uh, to do his dirty deed of betraying Jesus. At some point, this group transitions out of the upper room and begins to make their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. We're not exactly sure which conversation happened prior to the departure of Jesus. We know there comes a moment in time in which it's obvious he's not there anymore. Other conversations are happening. And this passage that we're looking at today falls into uh, probably, most likely, that category of texts in terms of the conversations that Christ is having with his disciples after Judas has departed and gone his own way. Before we jump in, let's just pause for a moment and pray and ask God to help us as we, as we dig into his word. Father, would you please illuminate the passage before us this morning by your spirit? Lord, it is impossible for men to understand the deep truths of your word apart from your help and your power, and so we do come before you this morning, Lord, and we ask that your spirit would just shine upon the text, that you would so open our minds and our hearts that we would receive and believe all that is there for us today. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Having read the biographies of Christians and and having considered, for example, from the Fox's Book of Martyrs. I've read about numerous, numerous stories of individuals who were caught in difficult, impossible situations, really, in which they stood up and they proclaimed the truth of Jesus Christ, and they offered forth the gospel, the good news that we could be forgiven and reconciled with God. And yet, that message of hope, that offer of grace was received, and it was met with hostility. And so you, you read accounts, not only in the, in the Bible, but the church historical accounts of men and women throughout the last two millennia who have come up against unbelievable persecution and hardship where for them to stand up and to proclaim the hope that we have in Christ and to offer forth the same invitation that we sang about this morning, come awake, that offer of of good news, that offer of salvation was met with, it wasn't just rejected, it was met with hostility, and they faced persecution. We have accounts throughout church history of individuals not simply being in prison, but being tortured and even executed for their faith. Facing the real threat of persecution, facing the real threat of torture, they were given an opportunity to denounce Christ, to reject Jesus, to say that they didn't really believe in him. And we have all kinds of stories in church history of men and women who refused to deny Christ, even in the face of horrific pain and torture and imprisonment. I've often wondered, I'm sure you have too, if I were in that situation, would I stand up for Jesus? If you're here this morning, perhaps you've asked yourself the question. We're, we're all incredibly fortunate, blessed by God to live in a country that to some measure celebrates religious freedom. At the very least, we can 
worship and gather together here on a Sunday morning relatively free from the fear of persecution. Nobody's going to come through the front doors and lock us all up and throw us into, into prison or worse. For the most part, we can tell people that we meet in the grocery store about Jesus. We can share our faith. We will undoubtedly be made fun of and, you know, ridiculed. But what if the stakes were higher? What if we lived in a place, in a land, in a time where to be faithful to Christ would almost certainly require our torture, imprisonment, or worse, watching our family suffer? Do you think that you have what it takes to be true to Jesus? Have you ever wondered that? We're looking this morning at a man, Peter, and his ten other companions, the eleven apostles. And I really doubt there is anyone in this room who is more devoted or more committed to Christ than they were. And yet when the chips were down, they all abandoned Jesus. And so as we get into the text this morning, I want to begin with this statement. You alone in and of yourself do not have what it takes to be true to Christ. You do not have, you do not have what is necessary to stay faithful to Jesus. Now walk with me. They're in the upper room, most likely. Judas is gone. And Jesus, after having celebrated communion with the apostles, makes the statement in verse 30, when they had sung a hymn, oh, I beg your pardon, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Most certainly Judas is not with them. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter's response to him in verse 35, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Peter is saying to Jesus, look, even if those other 10 guys betray you and deny you, not me. I'm better than them. I'm more faithful than the other 10. I will not deny you even if I have to die. But notice what Jesus bases this truth upon. This is a quote from Zechariah chapter 13. If you look back at verse 31, he says, It is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Jesus' statement to to the 11 apostles is, Look, and he's already told them, My time is at hand. He's already made it very clear what's about to happen. And he is telling them that this is imminent. They, they clearly know what is happening. He says, you're going to fall away from me this night. Jump down to verse 32. After I am raised up, he says, I will go before you to Galilee. After I am raised up. Now, Jesus on multiple occasions has said, I'm going to be crucified. They're going to do to the Son of Man whatever they will. And after three days, I'm going to come back from the grave. He said it over and over again. And even now, on the night that it's about to happen, on the night that it's all about to unfold, he makes this statement, after I'm raised up, I'll see you in Galilee. Now, they hear all of that. Jesus says, you're going to betray me. You're all going to fall away. It's been written in the scriptures. He quotes from Zechariah, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. But after I'm raised up, 
I will see you in Galilee. To which they don't say, wow, that's incredible, you're going to come back from the dead. No, no, no. They say, we're not going to deny you. We're not going to betray you. And then Peter steps forward and he says, hey, even if these other, you know, he kind of outs the other guys. You know what? They may do it. I don't know about these guys. But even if they do it, I'm not going to betray you. I'm going to die alongside of you if that's what's necessary. They're utterly confident that they have what it takes to stay true to Jesus. They have reason to feel good about themselves. These 11 guys have walked away from families and promising fishing careers. They've walked away from their homes. They have followed Jesus. They have traveled with him. When Jesus says, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men, they heard the call. They received the invitation. And in large part, they walked away from everything that they had ever known and understood. And they committed themselves to the task of following Christ. And for at least three years now, they've been with Jesus. They've been following Christ. They have seen him do all kinds of miracles. They themselves have been a part of of unbelievable events, the feeding of the 5,000, seeing people raised from the dead, they have reason to suspect that they have within themselves what is necessary to stay true to Jesus. Jesus says, you're not going to stick with me. Even though you think you are, you're all going to fall away. It's already been foretold. Jesus makes the statement, I will strike the shepherd, quoting from Zechariah, and the sheep will scatter. Notice that verse. We're not going to go to Zechariah, but just listen. In that particular prophecy... God speaking through the prophet Zechariah says, I will strike the shepherd. Now the execution of Jesus happens on two levels. It is surely wicked men who have come together and they are conspiring to kill Christ. But at the same time, the sovereignty of God is acknowledged. Even though it is being perpetrated by evil men, God is in control of the whole situation and his statement is that he, God the Father, will strike the shepherd. He is going to be the one that puts Jesus on the cross. It is going to be done through the hands of lawless and wicked and evil men, but ultimately the individual responsible is God the Father. He is putting Jesus on the cross, and Jesus is voluntarily going to the cross and willingly submitting to the hands of lawless men. God is in total control. Now the passage says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. If you have any knowledge or any understanding of sheep, you know that there's a natural tendency to them for them to flock together. Sheep flock together. Even without a shepherd, sheep will still stick together. Sure, you got the one that's prone to wander and drift off, but for the most part, they have a strong flocking nature. They'll stick together. Shepherds can lead the sheep, and the flock will stick together, and the shepherd will walk, and the flock will largely follow the shepherd. You really only need a handful of sheep, maybe even one sheep, one individual sheep, who's attached to that shepherd, and he'll follow that shepherd, and all the other sheep will just go because the one sheep is going. It's unbelievable how close together sheep will stick. The shepherd isn't there necessarily to keep the sheep together. They will naturally do that. You'll get the one oddball that will try to drift away, and of course the shepherd has to try and draw those individuals back to the flock. But for the most part, sheep will stay together unless there's a predator. And that's the real function of the shepherd, to protect the flock from danger. When God says, I am going to strike the shepherd, Jesus is going to be struck, absolutely. But as the shepherd of these men, he is the one keeping them safe and not just from physical harm. The real threat here is not physical. 
The real danger here is spiritual. How do I know that? Peter makes the statement, even if everyone abandons you and bails on you, I will stay with you even if it costs me my life. Now, to some measure, Peter is sincere when he says that. Look a little bit further down with me. Go down to verse 47, same chapter. While he was still speaking, Judas praying, and uh, not Judas, Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. While he was still speaking, Judas comes, one of the twelve, to betray Jesus. And with him comes a great crowd. We know that there were Roman soldiers, a company of Roman soldiers. There was an armed mob. They've all come together to, to arrest Jesus. With him comes a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. They are armed. Now we know from the Gospel of Luke that the apostles are also armed. Of the ten, of the eleven of them, they have two swords between the eleven of them. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then, the armed mob, they came up and laid hands on him and on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword. We know that this is Peter. Peter stands up. He draws out his sword in the face of an overwhelming force of armed soldiers and just regular peasant Jews. They've all come out with pitchforks, as it were. This is the armed mob, but they're not just an angry mob. They have organized military attachment that is with them. These are guys that are dressed in full Roman armor. They're soldiers. They're trained. They're disciplined in combat. This is a whole crew of people, and they've come with one singular purpose. They have come to arrest Jesus. In any military, anywhere in the world, if you as a soldier or a a Marine come up against armed opposition keeping you from achieving your mission, do you know what it is that you are trained to do? Remove the threat. Peter rises up with a sword in the face of a trained group of professional and deadly soldiers, and he is not ashamed. He is not shy. He raises that sword up, and he swings for the fences. His aim could be improved upon a little bit. He misses his, his head, so to speak, but he nicks the guy's ear. Give him some credit. He's a fisherman. He's not a trained soldier. You know, I will die with you, Jesus. There goes your ear. Now, he meant to kill the man, but he missed. In that moment, do you know what those Roman soldiers in any other situation would have done? Without even thinking about it. They're there, they've got swords, and it is no problem for Peter's life to be done and over and finished. They don't even care. Jesus intercedes. Verse 52, put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But then how should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Verse 55, at that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. We know from the other accounts that he healed the man's ear. But in this account, he stands in the midst of the conflict He says, Peter, stop, put your sword away. He rebukes Peter, and then he begins to interact with the group. 
In that moment, if you're a Roman soldier, you're like, okay, this guy's going to rabble rouse, that's fine. You draw your sword and you kill him. You run him through. But Jesus stops the whole group. He says, stop, 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 stop. Now, in this moment, Peter sees the armed group and he is ready to die for Jesus. He raises his sword. He is ready to do battle. But in just another hour or so, look what happens next. Jump down with me to verse 69. The group arrests Jesus. They make their way to the high priest's house. Jesus is now standing before the religious establishment, the Sanhedrin. He is having a trial in the middle of the night. It's a mock trial. He is standing there in this kangaroo court before Caiaphas and Annas. And Peter is outside the high priest's house, kind of waiting and watching, trying to see what's going to happen. There are no more soldiers. There is no more armed mob. The pitchforks, as it were, have been put away. The danger has moved inside. Now Jesus is in the high priest's house, and whatever is happening is taking place in that house. Verse 69, Peter was standing outside in the courtyard, Notice it's not a Roman legionnaire. It's not some sort of special forces, you know, servant of the Roman Empire, not some deadly assassin. No, it's a servant girl, a young handmaid, somebody who is employed, who works obviously in the high priest's house, undoubtedly doing trivial, menial labor, not skilled in the art of war, not lethal, not deadly. And Peter, you have to understand, Peter is a fisherman. He's lived his life on the Sea of Galilee. He is skilled in hauling in fish. This is a strong job. This is a job that requires a man's man. He undoubtedly has a barrel chest. He's a burly guy. He's used to working with his hands and hauling in fish all day. And a little girl comes up to him and says to him, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. Verse 70, but he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. No more soldiers, no more armed mob, just a little girl. I don't know what you're talking about. It continues. When he went out to the entrance, another servant girl. Girl A says, hey, you knew him, didn't you? No, no, I have no idea. Servant girl 2 comes up, says, you, you knew him. I think I saw you. With, nope, no idea. I don't know what you're talking about. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. Verse 72 hints at the fact that he employed some form of an oath or a promise. I swear before heaven, I don't know the man. Verse 73, after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, so it's a group of other individuals. They come up and they said to him, certainly you too are one of them for your accent betrays you. They didn't see him with Jesus necessarily. This last group, they just say, hey, you have the same accent that he has. You're from up north too, aren't you? Verse 74, then he began to invoke a curse on himself. Before he said, I didn't know the man. Then he said, with, a, with an oath, I don't know the man. And now he says, it says he invokes a curse. To translate this for you, Peter does something along the lines of looking up to heaven and saying, God, if it is true that I know Jesus, he's talking to God, he says, if it is true that I know Jesus, then you can, when it says invoke a curse, the Greek word there is anathema, it literally means damned to hell. 
So, in effect, what Peter does now with this group of bystanders, group number three, they come up to him. You know the guy because you've got the same accent that he has. He says, if I know the guy, God in heaven, if I know him, you can strike me down and curse me and curse my soul to hell. Now, what's the problem with this? Peter does know him. And God knows that Peter knows him. In this moment... Peter, out of fear of two servant girls and a small mob of bystanders, and they're not armed with pitchforks, this isn't the angry crowd, with these small, relatively harmless individuals, he breaks just like that. What is the real difficulty in staying true to Christ? It is not physical harm. And don't misunderstand me, that is a powerful threat. The real problem for us is not physical, it's spiritual. When Jesus surrenders to the armed mob, when they take Christ away, the shepherd has effectively been removed which means the predators are now free to hunt. And on this night that Jesus is captured, on this night of all nights, you know all the powers and forces of darkness were hard at work seeking his ultimate destruction. And if they're out to get Jesus, you know they're coming for his disciples. And the moment that Jesus surrenders himself, the scripture says the shepherd will be struck down and invariably the sheep are going to scatter. These guys, if you stop and you look and you study the 11 apostles, apart from Judas Iscariot, these 11 all come from the same part of, of, Jerusalem, of Israel. They're all from the north. They're all from Galilee. They're all Galileans. Many of them actually have the same occupation. They're all involved in fishing. These are men that know each other, that have lived together for the last three years. They are, to some extent, best friends. If you're in trouble, you flock to the people you know. You stick together with your crowd. But in that moment in which Jesus is struck down, it says, I will strike down the shepherd and the flock will scatter. They didn't think Judas would do this. And Judas has. And immediately in that moment, the spiritual persecution is so strong, they're looking at each other now, and they're like, I'm out of here. They don't stick together. They don't hang out with each other. They fly. They go away. But the real battle comes for Peter as he approaches the high priest's courthouse. He no longer has any confidence in anything. He doesn't understand what's happening, even though Jesus has been very clear in telling him what's about to happen. And so when a servant girl comes up to him, even though just moments before he was willing to stand up to an armed mob, he fails in the face of a servant girl. First Baptist Church, you do not have in yourself what it takes to stay true to Christ. If Peter couldn't do it, you can't do it either. The reason for this is because of how good Satan is. Satan is so clever 
He is so skilled at his art of deception, at pulling a fast one on us and leading us down a path of destruction. Satan is so clever, he could go over to the Kamloops Blazers, the hockey team over here at Interior Saving Center, and he could say, you know what, rather than playing your hockey games here in this wonderful Interior Saving Center, rather than having this nice sheet of ice, why don't you guys all go right down the street here to the Kamloops Curling Club, and you try to have your hockey game in this curling lane. And he is so clever and so smart and so skilled at his deception that he could actually get a group of hockey players thinking, yes, that's a great idea. Let's go do that. Now, some of you are not really sure what to make of that analogy. You probably aren't familiar with hockey. You're probably not familiar with curling. But that's a horrible idea, just so you know. To try and fit that many hockey players on that narrow stretch of ice, just stop and think about the ice for a second. Curling ice is specifically designed in such a way as to be sort of bubbly, kind of rough, have a texture to it so that the rock will spin a certain way. Whereas if you ever watched a hockey game, you know they always bring out the Zamboni in between periods because hockey players like ice that is smooth. You say, that's a stupid illustration, preacher. I can see it in your eyes. You're looking at me like, that is ridiculous. There's no way, there's no way you're going to get a group of men, grown men who've been skating on the ice their whole life, and there's no way you're going to convince them to give up their wonderful, beautiful interior saving center and to go to the, the Kamloops Curling Club. That's ridiculous. Is it now? Is it? I would like to draw to your attention Genesis chapter 3. A man and a woman living in paradise. They know nothing of sin. They are totally innocent. They walk with God. He is there. He is with them. They have daily face-to-face interactions with him. All of a sudden, there's a talking snake. All of a sudden, there's a talking snake. Remember, God has said to Adam and Eve, you're in charge. All of creation is under your dominion. Go forth, be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the earth. There's a talking snake. (laughs) Hey, you know that tree that God who created you said not to eat that's going to kill you in the day that you eat it? Yeah? Hey, let's go eat it. Man, that sounds like a great idea. Let's go do that. To put it in perspective, it would be like me standing up here taking out a yellow plastic jug that has the word poison written across the top of it with a little skull and crossbones underneath, you know, and danger, severely lethal to your health. And I'm like, hey, who's thirsty? You're like, wait a second, it's poison. Be like, yeah, but it's a yellow tub. Isn't that pretty? And you say, yeah, it actually is. Give me some. I want to try that. That's not an exaggeration, church. You think that's ludicrous because it is ludicrous. And it is so absurd that it is a testimony to the skill of the tempter. Satan is so strong that I can give you the most ridiculous illustrations of deception and subterfuge. And you think that is unbelievable. But if you stop to think about it, believe it. That's what happened. Satan is good at what he does. He is skilled in the art of deception. He knows how to trick you. He can make you swallow a glass of poison with your full knowledge and understanding of what it is that you're doing. 
And so when Peter says, I am going to stick with you, Jesus, I am not going to abandon you, even if I have to die, not for one second do I think that Peter was misinformed or somehow overestimating his own abilities. I think he was serious. I think Peter had it in his mind to die with Jesus is better than to live without him. I am absolutely convinced that Peter was totally convinced that he would rather die for Christ, stand up for him, even in the face of his own imminent death. And yet, the tempter is so good. He faces down the mob. He says, I can handle this. And in his mind, he's probably thinking, if I do this, I'm probably going to die. But he's prepared for that. He faces down a servant girl. But this time, Jesus has been taken out of the equation. The spiritual protection that is offered by the light of the world has been dimmed. And where there is no light, the darkness rushes in. He can handle the physical threat, but he is no match at all, not even a little bit, for the spiritual threat that Satan poses. Listen to me, church. Here's the first rule we need to understand from this. Apart from Christ, without the protection of Jesus, none of us have any chance, not even the slightest ability to withstand the threat of the enemy, the real enemy. They say, why are you telling us this preacher? To discourage us? To make us feel afraid? To a certain extent, yes. Absolutely. You need to be wary of your adversary. You need to be humbled before the threat that you face. You need to recognize that it is real and that in and of yourself you do not have what it takes to withstand the enemy. The same guy who was absolutely convinced of his ability to withstand years later writes a letter, and in that letter he makes a statement, humble yourselves, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. What is the lesson? This guy that was willing to take on the armed mob but quaked and cowered in front of a servant girl, what is the lesson he took away from that? Lesson number one, you guys be humble. Be humble. Do not overestimate your ability to stand up in the face of the enemy. Do not think that you have what it takes. And then he says be sober-minded. That is, to think with a real assessment. You can't take Satan. You don't have what it takes. Watch out for him. Know he's out there. Be wary of him. Know that he's coming for you like a roaring, hungry, angry lion. This is the counsel of a man who was really willing to die for Christ. And we know from his life that he did, in fact, die for Christ. This lesson is meant to inform us and to instruct us I think that if they had listened carefully to Christ's second statement and if they had placed their hope in what Jesus said, they would have been better equipped to withstand the pressures of the enemy. Why does Peter deny Jesus in front of a servant girl? Because he's got the enemy whispering in his ear, hey, this servant girl, she finds out that you're a follower of Jesus, she's going to kill you. So that a grown man is now absolutely terrified of a little girl. 
because the enemy is whispering lies into his ear and he's believing those lies. But if he'd stopped and said, hmm, what did Jesus say? What was the promise that he gave? He told me I would deny him. Okay. But what else did he say? Go back to Matthew chapter 26, verse 32. After I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter didn't fully believe in Jesus' promise that he was coming back from the dead. So when Jesus got captured, he was caught by surprise and he was not sure what to make of the situation. But if he had believed in that word, then he would have also have believed in the word that you're going to betray him. He would have known that was going to happen. And in the midst of that, then he would have been able to receive wholeheartedly the promise that Jesus offered. When I am raised up, I will meet you in Galilee. So if you're Peter and you're facing down this servant girl, she says, you're a follower of Jesus. You do not absolutely go berserk and start calling God to invoke curses down upon you. God, if I know this man, strike me dead right now. If you recognize that Jesus, who has been totally right about everything up until this point, is also saying, I will see you in Galilee after I'm raised from the dead on the third day. You're not afraid that the servant girl can kill you if Jesus has just promised you that in a few days' time, you're going to see him face-to-face in Galilee. Maybe you get locked into jail. Maybe bad things happen. There is no doubt that I, I'm, I'm completely convinced. Jesus says, Peter, you're going to deny me, and Peter's going to deny him, because Jesus is always right, and he sees the situation for what it is. But if Peter had stopped and said, okay, he was right about that, okay, and now I'm in trouble, and I'm afraid, and I'm denying him left and right, but Jesus said I would see him in a few days' time in Galilee. Which means even though every fiber of my being is telling me that I should be absolutely terrified of this little servant girl right now, whatever harm she may be able to do to me, I still have this promise that I'm going to see Jesus in a few days' time. So whatever's going to happen in the midst of this courtyard, I'm not going to die at least not yet. He didn't hope in the first part of of Christ's promise. So he couldn't see his way to the second part either. You know what all of this tells me? You and I are incredibly gifted at looking at anything and everything else for reassurance rather than the word of Jesus. And you and I are incredibly gifted at trying to justify all manner of behavior by looking to all sorts of data points beyond what the simple word of God says. And do you know what else this tells me? Jesus knows all of that. This conversation happens right after communion. Jesus is celebrating the Passover. And he knows what's about to happen. And he knows that they're about to all betray him. These guys, his best friends, his traveling companions for the last three years, he knows that they're about to betray him. 
He knows Peter's going to call down a curse from him if it's true that Peter knows him. Jesus knows he's not going to answer that prayer request from Peter. And he says, take, eat. This bread is my body, broken for you. He takes the cup and he says, take, drink. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, given for you. Understand, church, listen. You get into trouble when you do not listen to Jesus and you listen instead to the lies of the enemy. And you will get into trouble. But even when you do get into trouble, know that Jesus foresaw it and he has already forgiven it and he still holds forth his grace and his mercy for you to partake. I draw so many incredible promises from this passage. Number one, if I will always look to God's word, even though the world ridicules me and makes fun of me, I can never go wrong if I just do what the Bible says. It is so simple. I preach that message more or less every single week. We still get into trouble, even though we've heard it. Just follow the scriptures. Do what the Bible says. Don't worry too much about the world. Don't worry what the world can do to you. Fear God. Do what what Jesus says. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two, he knows you. And though we encourage each other and we exhort each other to give our best efforts to do all that we can to follow Jesus as faithfully as we possibly can, he knows you and he loves you. And all the forgiveness and all the grace that you need is there for you on the cross. I don't know how I would react or how I would respond if I were in a situation where my life was being threatened and I was being offered the opportunity of escape if I would just deny Christ. I don't know how I would respond. I can tell you this, how I respond depends on what I'm looking at. The real question is not, what will I do? The real question is, where will I focus? A number of years ago, in Texas at Thanksgiving time, American Thanksgiving. It's a tradition that Texans, because it's the first sort of cold snap of the year, and by cold I mean it's gone from 40 down to about 30 degrees Celsius, okay? Not a Canadian understanding of cold, but it's cold to the native Texans. We do bonfires. We go out and we make a huge fire and it's not even that cold. We're still wearing shorts, but we're all gathered around this bonfire in our shorts like, yeah, it's winter, yeah. <laughs> it's ridiculous, I know, but this is Texas culture. My wife went to the University of Texas A&M. They had a tradition there at Texas A&M that right before the Thanksgiving football game, right before the week of Thanksgiving, they would build this enormous bonfire. The thing stands about 70 feet tall It looks like a layered wedding cake. It's got 18-foot logs on the bottom, a huge bundle of them. There's another group of 18-foot logs stacked on top of that, and then there's another another smaller group of logs stacked on top of that, like a layered wedding cake. There's a, a center pole that holds this whole thing upright. In November of 1999, one of my friends, Jeremy Frampton, is what you would call a brown pot. 
part of the student body at the University of Texas A&M. His job was to supervise the construction of this enormous stack of logs. That stack fell that night, and 12 students were killed. Jeremy Frampton, my friend, I went to school with this kid. I was a senior, grade 12, high school. He was four years ahead of me. He had gone on to the University of Texas A&M. And he died that night. I'd gone to church with Jeremy. I knew that he loved the Lord. He was absolutely passionate in his devotion to Jesus Christ. The investigation came out several months later and it was revealed that the reason that the stack fell was as a result of faulty construction. They had misweighted the stack. It was leaning too far to one side. They'd put heavier logs on the wrong side of it. And the reason that it fell that night specifically was because the direction that was being given by one Jeremy Frampton was flawed because it was revealed that his blood alcohol limit was twice the legal limit. Immediately, the newspapers began to publish stories excoriating. My friend. I went to high school with this guy. He never drank a drop in high school. I went to church with this guy. He was not the guy that went to parties. He was not the guy that ran with the wrong crowd. He was a follower of Jesus Christ. He went off to university and he was active in church at university. He served in the local Awanas program at his church there. He was a mentor to dozens of young men. The only thing that that small town I'm from, Dripping Springs, remembers of Jeremy Frampton is that he died in shame and disgrace. Perhaps the greatest headline, I'll never forget this, Dripping Springs Dispatch newspaper. They don't make newspapers anymore, but I still remember this headline from that particular day's newspaper. Local Christian kid kills 12. Christian in scare quotes. We grieved, we buried him, and I went to university served in the United States Marine Corps, was discharged from the Marine Corps, came back to the University of A&M as my wife was finishing up her degree there, attended the same church where Jeremy had attended while he was in university. And the last Sunday we were there, <coughs> five young men come forward. They give their lives to, to Christ. A pastor had a practice that I have followed to this day myself. He asked them as they were sharing their testimony, who is the person most instrumental in you coming to faith? These five young men were very involved in the Iwana program. And they said, Jeremy Frampton. Immediately the church was like, oh, Jeremy Frampton, I've heard that name before. Who is that guy? Yeah, he used to go here. You know, they're trying to remember who this guy is. In the four years since the stack fell, the bonfire came tumbling down, he's already faded from our memory. But he hadn't faded from the memory of those five students. 
the mom of Jeremy Frampton, Melissa Frampton, had gone to the University of Texas A&M, had tracked down these five students and had given them the journal that Jeremy kept. Recorded in this journal were the prayers that he prayed for these young men. They had read those prayers. They had continued to go to church. And they eventually got saved as a result of his influence on their life. Now, we're all here, and you're all listening with rapt attention, and this is the point that I want to make. You will be beset by temptations over the course of your life that are so powerful and so overwhelming that in your own strength you have no hope of withstanding the enemy. And it's entirely possible, even likely, that for a handful of us in this room, we will fail. We will give in to the peer pressure. We will succumb to the temptation. Just like Peter. But Jesus will always forgive all those who have placed their hope in him. And even beyond the grave, whatever contribution you have made, whatever sacrifice you have given for the cause of Christ, Jesus will use it to glorify his name. Church, as we walk away from this text this morning, always look to God's word. Always, always, always do what the Bible says. But even when you fail, know that you are not strong enough to break Christ's hold on you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you so much, Lord, for the gift that we have been given in the life of the Apostle Peter. And I pray, Lord, that as we bring our time to a conclusion this morning, I pray, Lord, that if there are any here who are giving their lives to anything else besides simple faith in you and obedience to what you say, I pray, God, you convict them of the danger of that, that they would recognize there is an enemy who is out to destroy them, and I pray that you would call them back from the brink of that destruction. And I thank you so much, God, that you have given us all the grace and all the forgiveness and all of the mercy that we will ever need in sending your son, Jesus, to die on the cross. Father, give us grace to follow you and give us the strength to resist the enemy, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.